Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we are joined by Dr. Phil Graham-Smith, who is the Head of Biomechanics and Innovation at the Aspire Academy based in Qatar. So thank you for joining, Phil. Thank you. Good. I know it's, uh, it's a Sunday for you, which is a working day, but you're worth the um, me giving up the Sunday for anyway. Appreciate <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, that. <laughs> so where are you from? I mean, we've, uh, I can tell you're a northern, a northern guy. So where are you from originally? I'm from a little town called Elland, which is in West Yorkshire, between Halifax and Huddersfield. That's where I was born and grew up, did my schooling before moving on to university life and not being back since, really. <laughs> so from that then, so how did you, it was sports science something that you were always interested in? Man, I mean, I, I grew up as the, the little fat lad um, who was always last to be picked. And, and when I say that, I'm talking about when I was four or five. Um, sport sort of became more important to me when I was seven. Um, I, it sort of changed my life, really, from, from being that little short, fat kid to be someone who was quite popular at school because I was pretty good at football and water polo, swimming. Um, and it was really that, that interest in, in sport, um, as well as being pretty good at physics and maths um, and, and science generally at school as well as being quite creative in, in art as well. I mean, I, I love drawing, painting, sketching. Um, so I had quite a balanced outlook as a kid uh, in the school, Brooksbent School in Elland. Um, and one of my teachers in particular, well, two actually, uh, Bob Truman uh, was my math teacher, who, who was a real strong influence over me. And uh, my physics teacher... Mr. Atkins, and Mr. Atkins got wind of me playing water polo. I'm going, going off on one here, <laughs> but Mr. At Mr. Atkins came one Friday evening to watch me play water polo for Yorkshire. And I thought, wow, that, you know, for a, for a guy to, to take time out of his weekend to come and watch me, it was pretty special on that. But Mr. Truman was a great cricketer, obviously with a name like that, he was a, a great cricketer. And he, he took a, a lot of time and an interest in what I was doing, uh, playing sport, but also saw the, the, that side of me. And all, all I wanted to do back in my te early teenage years was go, join the army because I liked the physical side of things or be a PE teacher. And Mr. Truman said, don't be a PE teacher. He said, you can do better than that. Now, that, that's not to, <laughs> not to dismiss that with any PE teachers out there because you know I have a lot of time in fact one of my PE teachers was Brian Campbell who went on to be one of the the top rugby union referees in the world um, so I had, I had a, a great upbringing at school and sport was always going to be you know part of it um, whether I went down the route of being a PE teacher or going into what was then a, a completely new field in sports science back in the, the, the mid to late 80s. You know, nobody had heard about it. Um, so much so that when I went to, when I got my A-levels, I completely bombed out at A-levels. I got an, uh, a B in maths and an E in physics. Uh, I, I didn't even get a grade in geography. Why I did geography, I don't know, but uh, I, I wish I'd done art or something. A-levels were the hardest, but b because of the stigma back then of a, of a polytechnics against universities, I actually had a place at Liverpool Poly to do sports science, and I, 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 I didn't go there. I went to Bradford Uni to do maths because, you know, it was seen to be, you go to university if you can, polytechnics is a, is a back you know, backseat thing. But after two terms at um, Bradford Uni, uh, and I was living at home, you know, th thanks to Calderdale Council, I got my first car. I used, used my grant to, to buy it back in the day when you got paid to go to uni. 
I bought a, a Mark III Escort, 1.1 litre, you know, and it lasted me for many years. And certainly the, the, the following year when I went actually to Liverpool Poly to start my, so I, I dropped out of Bradford and I went to Liverpool Polytechnic in, in 1989, graduated in 92. So where I met my wife, um, got married in 93, but in 92, when I graduated, um, I was fortunate to get onto something called a sports science support program. Another guy who massively influenced me was uh, Professor Adrian Lees at Liverpool Polytechnic, biomechanist, came from an engineering background, but top, top bloke. Um, he, he sort of took me under his wing and I got this position to do a PhD on this sports science support program working with uh, what was British Athletics Federation at the time. Uh, 1997 that folded and it re-emerged as UK Athletics which obviously now is British Athletics you know so um, 92 was the, the year when it all really started for me in sports science as a graduate uh, doing a PhD working with the top uh, long and triple jumpers in the country um, and, you know, you've got to sort of pinch yourself at times because within three years of working with two of these athletes in particular, Jonathan Edwards breaks a world record. And then in 98, Asher Hansen broke the world indoor record in triple jump. And then there's been a whole raft of other long and triple jumpers in, in that mix. You know, Denise Lewis was a good long jumper, Kelly Southerton, Jade Johnson, Chris Tomlinson, um, Nathan Morgan. I mean, there was, there was four, there was five medals in the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in long jump and triple jump with other athletes that I was working with since 1992. So, you know, you know for this lad, <laughs> brought up in, in, in the, you know, Halifax Huddersfield area, who was then working with some of the best athletes in the world in, in an event that I've never, <laughs> never done, you know, in the, in the words of some coaches, fat don't fly. Well, as that short fat kid, I, I weren't going to be a long jumper, you know, I had to float. I made use of my attributes floating, playing waterfall. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> You know, this is, you know, and, and from obviously you can tell that I, I do take the mickey out of myself as well. But uh, absolutely amazing opportunities are being given. Uh, I don't think people get them right now, though. I think um, the, the, the whole area of sports science is absolutely saturated now. You know, back in 1988, you know, you might have had a half a dozen sports science courses in the country. People probably didn't take them as seriously as they should have done back then. Um, but you had your Liverpool, Poly, Brighton, Manchester Met, Birmingham. Where else? There's probably six of Bangor in, in North Wales. You know, places like that with some diehard sort of classic... Um, lecturers there, Tom Riley, Adrian Lees, you know, Les Berwitz at MMU, all these guys, Roger Bartlett, you know, those names were at the, the forefront of everyone's minds back then. Um, so I was very much in the, that earlier cohort of people forging a career in, in sports science. Now, every uni, every college, sports science, 300 graduates a year, 1,800 graduates across the country per year, whatever it might be. Eight, no, maybe 8,000, 8, 9,000 graduates a year. You think, where, where do they all go? You know, which is pretty sad, really. Yeah, Les Burwitz is actually at MME when I was at Old Sages. So, yeah, I remember yeah. that very well. The base is now. Yeah. 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 So, what did you think, like, in terms of British athletics or what the organisation was called then? Like, what? Why were they so forward-thinking to, to want to get specialists on board for that? I think it boiled down to 
I mean, obviously, I, I was nothing in, not involved in, in the background work. I was just the one who was fortunate to be employed as the, the project assistant. But it boils down to one man, and, and that's Frank Dick. Um, he was the head of British athletics at the time. And he had this idea about trying to build up technical models for all events. So the, the National Coaching Foundation, as it was back in those days, got some government funding to set up this sports science support program, of which there were some in athletics. There were five in athletics. There was the, the horizontal jumps with Liverpool. There was pole vault um, and high jump, I think, were in Loughborough. The throws were in Manchester and Leeds. Uh, and then you had sprint hurdles down in Brunel. Um, but then there were other programs going on in, in different universities as well, you know, across different sports. Um, so it was really quite a pioneering time back in the, probably I suppose probably 1990, 1991, where they sort of kicked off. Sarah Rowell was overseeing it from a bases and NCF point of view. And, and that lasted probably five or six years until the lottery funding came in. So it was, it's quite a, a pivotal time in sports science, I'd say, you know, where we were trying to, to start getting practitioners on, on a vocational pathway. Uh, and I guess I was, I was very fortunate to be in that first group of, of people across these different sports who were working as the first applied sports scientists in the country, I guess. Mm. So what was it like working with Jonathan Edwards? Again, he was mm. maybe the most prominent athlete in the country at that point. Mm. What was that like? And how did they engage with you as well? Were they, I'm sure they were taking seriously information, but how, how did they take that? Well, I mean, it's all quite surreal, really. You know, as I said, you know, for someone who had never got the talent that they had in, in jumps, you know, to, to listen to, to me and give advice. I, I was pretty daunting, daunted at times, certainly in 92 to 94, when I'm still trying to find my feet the first couple of years. I sort of grew into it. And the, the, the program revolved around going to two or three major championships a year, doing some video analysis. So let me retract that. Cine film analysis where, you know, there, there was an art in that, you know, loading the, the low cam and photosonics films and getting the right exposure, getting 400 foot of cinefilm, sending it to Kodak to get processed, come back a month later, then you start analysing it. I mean, you're, you're looking at a two-month process of analysing one decent jump off of an athlete. But that's what was needed at that time. And then it goes, it goes back to what Frank Dick's vision was. He wanted to understand how do jumpers jump? How do throwers throw? How do sprinters sprint? You know, what is there anything that we can find out about movement patterns of what creates success? And, you know, I, I spent hours and hours and hours each summer digitizing 18 body parts for about 100 frames of movement for every athlete or in the finals, you know, the top eight to 10 athletes in each event. Um, so I started building up, visualizing, you know, the process of manually digitizing all these points, it's, it's monotonous, but I'd say that was the foundation for me to really appreciate the movement patterns. When, when the arm goes out of view, and the leg goes out of view because it's occluded by the other body part or the body, you start putting yourself in, into those positions and working out where the elbow is and where the wrist is. And, you know, it, it was a fascinating time. And, and at the time, it felt mundane and monotonous. But looking back on it, that's where I did a lot of my learning. So in, in addition to the, uh, the competition analysis we did, which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, we also had two training camps in Liverpool each year. So the, the, the squad would come up in November and March. And in between that, you had the indoor competition 
as well. So you, you'd have an indoor competitions in, in January, February, and you'd have November, February assessments where we'd look at physical attributes of uh, jump height, um, counter movement, squat jumps, drop jumps. Um, we'd have them running and jumping up at Waver Tree. We'd as uh, assess their 40 meter sprint times. Uh, and then we're back in the lab then in the Saturday afternoon we would get them on the, uh, the Lido, you know, and obviously that's the connection we have with the Biodex and, uh, you know, the, one of the reasons why I'm such a, a big fan of, of isokinetics was the safety in being able to measure these guys' maximal eccentric quad strength, you know, which we found through the technical analysis to be um, such a key uh, performance indicator. You know, you had the likes of... Uh, the, these top athletes resisting five and a half, six times their body weight on eccentric quads and up, up to three and a half, four times body weight on eccentric hamstrings. You know, so you, you, we're looking at it from a performance and injury prevention point of view for the hamstrings as well. Um, and, and that's why isokinetics have been a staple part of my um, key go-to technologies for, for athlete assessment. Uh, is on the back of of what I found, you know, with with these jumpers. But uh, ironically, you know, going just going back to the competition side of things, the the, the most impact we had wasn't necessarily in me look, working out what the technical model should be from all this cinefilm. It was getting my VHS tapes. So uh, alongside doing the cinefilm, we would record on you know, the big, big cameras. And it was like walking around with a big ghetto blaster. Uh, with it, you know, in fact, one of the guys, I'll have to tell you, one of the bike guys down in um, Bedford, it was a hot sunny day at the, under the junior championships. And he'd got this, this camera to one side of his face. And at the end of the day, his one side of his face was sunburnt and the other wasn't. It just looked like Phantom of the Opera. You know, it was, it was hilarious. He had a bit of sunstroke, to be fair, which, which wasn't so good. But, uh, you know, editing those tapes, compiling them, putting a bit of Vangelis on there, Chariots of Fire, and, you know, the background music and what have you. Taking their approach speeds, looking to see how well they, they performed on the back of the speed. Did they convert that into distance? You know, that was, and the phase distances in the hop, step and jumps, total board distances. That was the stuff we got back to them within a week. That was the stuff that made a difference. That's what, what got the engagement. To, to answer your question, <laughs> how did you get the engagement? It took about 15 minutes that. It was about finding the quick, simple things that they were interested in. How fast am I? They understood if I run fast, I jump far. You know, generally speaking, how fast was I? You know, how far could I have jumped? And and then when you get into the, the physical testing up at the university in Liverpool, it was how strong am I? Can I resist more on the eccentric quads than, you know, these athletes that were there? Even the camaraderie around the the lab was was phenomenal. You know, cheering, cheering each other on to try and stop the machine and, you know, you had Big Larry Achiki, you know, there was Michelle Griffith in there. There was loads of these top names. Michelle was the first girl to go over 14 metres. Asha Hansen, first girl to go over 15 metres, you know, world indoor record in 98. You know, it was, it, it was pretty special. Denise Lewis was there, you know, plus a whole raft of others. You mm. know, phenomenal. Yeah, and do you think that were we ahead of the curve there? Is that why we were so successful? Because you were there to support on that biomechanical standpoint? Look, I mean, I would never be so arrogant to say it was me at all. You know, I, I was dipping my toe in. And, and this is the thing I, I get frustrated about academia is a lot of academics dip the toe in and, and think they're having a lot of impact. It wasn't until probably 1997 when I started going out of the university 
to work with athletes at the track down in Birmingham, down at Lee Valley, wherever that might be. <clears throat> and and the, whole, the whole shift of that provision stemmed from lottery funding and the, um, the money available for UK athletics to start, to start building high performance centers at Loughborough, Bath, whatever it might be around the country. And on the back of that, it, there was no need to come to Liverpool anymore. Squad weekends occurred at Windsor, and Eton. They were at Birmingham High Performance Center. But that, start, that shift started in 97. And it was when I started going out to the, to the, the centers during the daytime and being in and around the training environment, not the testing environment, you, you start to see things differently. And that's where you think, crikey, did, did I really have an impact over those two world records? Not directly, but I'm pretty sure what we were coming out with in, in terms of the technical models and what factors were important for success that came out, you know, on, on the squad weekends, uh, Saturday evenings were little talks. We talked about plyometrics. We talked about, um, you know, how strong do you have to be? How flexible do you have to be? You know, what does the technical model look like? You know, where should your body be in these positions? You know, all these things came out through conversations formally. And then after that, you know, at the bar, you know, talking to, you know, John Crotty, Peter Stanley, Aston Moore, Frank Atto, you know, the, uh, John Herbert, all these top coaches who were coaching, you know, Jonathan and Asher, Philip Sadow, Nathan Morgan, Jay Johnson, Kelly, you know, Denise, all, all these, these athletes. It was, a, it was a really good, humbling experience to, to being in around these guys. And they were actually listening to the things that I'm saying and, and actually engaged in dialogue um, around how we can improve testing, how we can make it a little bit more specific. And that's what came out of the, 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 the biggest um, shift from moving away from the uni to a high performance center was we couldn't take the isokinetic with us. We couldn't take the, bio, the, the, the Lido as it was then or the Biodex because it's just too big. So that transition phase into measuring strength was we used the Concept 2 Dyno. We, we hired a van and we took a Concept 2 Dyno. And then we had good conversations around, well, you're in a seated position, you, you, your body's upright, you're doing a leg press. Is that the best position to be doing it in? And from that discussion bore out the ISO squat. So we had a portable force plate. We were doing jump tests on that anyway. And we created a scenario where we could put the athlete in a position with the body upright and the knee flex to 135 degrees where the ankle, hip and bar were in alignment and we could recreate that. And that's what we started doing the, the ISO squat. Back in probably 1998, we started doing that. You know, I see now all the thing about the rage about isometric midnight pulls and, you know, I, I just smile because we, we looked into doing a pull back then and I thought, no, nah, there's something about the pull. You can't get the same positions. You're pulling, you're not pushing. We wanted to take out any parts of leakage out of, this, out of that equation. So the ISO squat is what we were doing. We never had an injury. And... Uh, and again, the competition around it was phenomenal. You had seen what your max strength was, you know. So, mm. was there ever an opportunity or a desire from your standpoint to be full time in sport? Um, no, not not then. It wasn't because it, it wasn't until two thousand and four. Um, another conversation around. EIS funding uh, and UK athletics wanted someone in, in Birmingham to work with some of the, the guys there. And that's when we appointed, I say we, UK athletics appointed 
Paul Bryce, Dr. Paul Bryce. And um, I mentored him for many years and then he sort of carried that forward and he was the one doing a lot more of the going on camps, warm weather training and, and what have you. For me at that point, I was progressing in the academic uh, lines. I was, I'd moved to Salford at that time. I was program leader in 2004 for sports rehab. We'd, we'd probably got the Biodex order then, <laughs> you know, we, we got that one in. Um, there, there wasn't, there was that comfort zone of being an academic, still being able to, to be part of that elite world. And, and it, it, it probably was comfort, you know, to why, why would I put myself onto a four year cycle when I've got, you know, I could be there for 20 years, I could be there till retirement. And I, I guess it wasn't then until um, 2009, when Stafford Murray approached me to become a, like the consultant head of biomechanics at the EIS, that all those years of experience of working in and around uh, high performance sport, I became a lot more involved in that lead up to London. And on the back of that, there, there was this, I don't know, I'm sure I probably wasn't the, the only one, but London, there was something special about London. Myself and Paul Jones from Salford were, were doing some little um, project on, on the jumps in the games uh, with England Athletics. And we were there for every session. We, we, there was a buzz around it. And the back of that, it was, my mentality changed. It was this weird feeling of um, missing something. They're like post games blues, I guess. And I wasn't even an athlete, you know, I wasn't part of the delegation, you know, I was there primarily as a games maker, stroke, video gatherer, writing a report for, for England athletics. And it, it was after, shortly after that, that Tim Cable, who was my former boss at Liverpool, John Moores, approached me. He'd moved out to Aspire Academy and he had approached me to see if I wanted to go out to, or would I be interested in becoming head of biomechanics at Aspire? And I thought, you know what? Maybe it's time for a change. Maybe it's time just to, to put my money where my mouth is if I think I'm more outward facing and more about applying what I know, then let's give it a crack. And I was lucky to have a supportive head of school who offered me a, a 12 month sabbatical to come out to Aspire. And I think in those 12 months, things had changed at the uni. Um, we were, as a family, we were enjoying things here in Qatar. Not, not so much the, the sun, but the whole work-life balance was completely uh, for the better. And we decided to, to hand our notices in back home. My wife was teaching in uh, a school in, in Cheshire, in Northwich, and um, we handed our notices and we, we stayed here. And we didn't think for one minute we'd be here almost eight years later. Um, it's opened up so many doors for me here. It's untrue. Um, Caitlin had a phenomenal schooling at Doha College. Uh, she's just finishing a physio degree at the University of East Anglia. Um, and just got a job the other day. <laughs> First interview, got a job. So I mean, we're very proud of her. And yeah, it, it's... It, the, the eight years here have, have been strange at times, but very, um, very rewarding. Yeah, and, and that's, just, that's not just financially, obviously. I mean, there's, there's obvious benefits of being in the, in the Middle East. Um, but my, what would it be? It, it, the, the way I see sport, the way I see applying science, it's probably gone to another level. The way I've been challenged 
to, to really engage with athletes to, to get, convey the information across in a simple way. Because you don't forget we're working with kids in high school, basically. Um, can you hear that? <laughs> They've got some messages coming through here, sorry. No, I can't hear that. Um, um, we're working with kids. I work with kids primarily from 15 to 19. Our goal is to get them to the World Junior Championships. We work with some some real quality athletes as well, um, and some great coaches. and And they've challenged my thinking, the way we apply ourselves, and we've had some phenomenal results. So it's great to be part of of a process. Working with with kids keeps you young. You know, they call me Uncle Phil. <laughs> you know, I'm 51 now. They ain't going to get me seen and do me any plyometrics, but uh, the knees have gone. But, you know, they, they love the dad jokes. Yeah. So when you just go back to your time in academia, then at Liverpool and Salford, how did you find that managing from research to teaching to working with sports teams? Did you enjoy the balance of that? I did. I did. There, there was a buzz about it because... My, my mentality around research was, why do it if it's just going to sit in, in a paper format for half a dozen people to cite? You know, I, I, I was never really that struck about playing that publication game. For me, it was more about engagement. And I wanted, if I'm going to do research, I want it to be used you know, so right from the word go, back in 92, starting with British athletics, I knew that whatever questions were being thrown at me by coaches and athletes, how strong do you need to be? How fast do you need to be to, to jump eight meters? You know, questions like this. The, the research I was doing was answering a specific question. So what I, what I can't get my head around is all this research for researchers sake, just plucking a question out of the head, thinking, oh, that sounds interesting because it's never been done before. Like, you're wasting your time. You know, you, you, you're surviving and eventually you'll, you'll go under because there's just nothing being taken and, and used. So um, it was, it was the, the interesting thing for me was linking the engagement side of things up, developing partnerships, with Salford Reds and Sales Sharks, Lancashire Cricket Club, answering specific questions and profiling athletes um, and using them as a source of research material. Um, enhancing the student experience by giving them opportunities to work with quality athletes to get quality issued placements. So it all sort of fit together. It was a holistic package if you like it wasn't just boxing off research is one thing and I think this is where a lot of academics go wrong you know they just see the research as being one separate a separate entity to everything else and it, it shouldn't be it should be all part of you know an holistic package of this research feeds this purpose I'm going to use that purpose to feed my teaching and my materials in my course um and and the, the whole engagement is the driver of it all, you know. So for me, I, I loved that part of it. Um, always had that more outward-facing approach to academia. You know, it wasn't a case of, you know, I'm going to set up a half a million pound lab with Vicon and force plates and whatever, and you know, you have to come, you have to come to see me. That'd be more about let's go out and tackle some real problems. You know, the I, I was it's interesting. I've just been trying to put materials together for a a bases Easter meeting or the 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 big interest group meeting in 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 April, and I just put a timeline up of of my career. So the the fact that we you know we're talking now. It's very opportune because just this morning I've been sort of putting things in place. That whole outward facing side of things. Back in 94, Adrian Lee's 
was approached by a, a garage inventor from Bolton who'd come up with a new outsole design of a football boot. So Adrian got me involved in testing this configuration of an outsole. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but it was basically what became the Adidas traction outsole, the bladed outsole with a circular configuration. And Umbro took it on and called it the, the Spin RG range. So that was at the outset of all the, the blade type outsole designs, which Adidas took on with their traction outsole and a few others did as well. So that, that was back in 94. Then we, we were doing other work with a, a company called PowerVest, where a guy called Richard Borrell had developed, ex-army, had developed a, a weighted jacket with weights going over the shoulder and lower back. So it was distributed in areas that weren't gonna add extra stress to your spine. So we did some evaluation of spinal shrinkage. We did you know, what, what performance benefits you could get from it. We wrote a nice little article for ergonomics on it. There was another project with a company called Shoot to Win. Um, but then in, in 2006, uh, Salford, Fitflop, Marcia Kilgore. Uh, if, if you don't know who Marcia Kilgore is, you need to Google her. She has had three multi-million dollar businesses. Started off with um, Bliss, beauty products, spas. She sold that and she set two more companies up. One was Soap and Glory, which you, I think Boots took over. Um, and she set up the, the fit flop and she approached me to see if we would evaluate the, the fit flop. The idea being uh, from her background in, in personal training, bodybuilding, um, that, and as a young mother, she was sat in a forum of 10 experts around the world where they were discussing how to get rid of cellulite. And she's thinking the only way you'll get rid of it is if you burn it off. So she's, her mind works at a million miles an hour and she's thinking wobble board in a shoe. That formed the basis of prototypes for the, um, the fit flop. And she, she worked with a London South Bank Uni and a former student of ours um, who was working there. And she messaged me, can, can you um, do an evaluation of it? So a couple of days later, her husband drove up to Salford, parks his car, drops off this prototype size six. Myself and Richard Jones were in the lab. We, we got a lot of students and we, we evaluated the fit flop against barefoot, high heels, trainers, sandals. I think there were six different comparisons. And we found that the, the, the fit flop actually work the, the glutes harder and the calves, you know, the, the, the way it works. So on the basis of that, um, we wrote a little uh, executive summary and that executive summary ended up being on every pair of hang tags worldwide with a little image from us uh, and my name against it. And I've got friends over in in, in America going, oh, I've just seen the fit flops. And it was Oprah's best selling or most endorsed product of, of the season. They sold out 300,000 pairs in next to no time and same in the UK. And, and that led to a, a knowledge transfer partnership that Rich Jones and myself oversaw at Salford. But when I was just going back to this, to her husband, um, Thierry came up to Salford, parked his car in front of the Blatchard building. I went up into a lecture in early afternoon to see where the car was. So it's backing onto the A6 Crescent. It's this low level dark blue Ferrari. And I'm like, oh my word, oh my word, what are you doing? You know, but he's like, it's only it's only a Ferrari, you know, if it gets stolen, it gets stolen. That's why we have insurance. So she taught me a lot about the, the value of research for marketing, 
for backing your product up. And just before I left to come to, um, to Aspire, probably in the November time of 2012, there was a big onslaught of class actions going across America against Sketches, Reebok, and then they tackled flip-flop about false marketing claims about these toning shoes and, and various things. And the, the bottom line is it both myself and Rich Jones had to sit in six-hour-long video depositions working with these crack lawyers from San Diego, going through dossiers of material from emails that were sent back in 2007 between us and some of the, the, the team at FitFlop. The, the outcome was where Sketches and FitFlop, uh, Sketches and uh, Reebok had been massively uh, fined like 50, 60 million dollars. Fit, FitFlop got away with a $5 million out of court settlement, no admission of guilt. That's the value of having an ongoing research program to, to support your product, you know, and they could prove that um, marketing claims had been adjusted along the way, you know. So, I mean, that, that was a, a fascinating experience there. But in the midst of all that came Force Decks. So do you want to know about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that definitely is really interesting. So that's, and I came across, I remember you mentioned Forstex to me, that might have been eight years ago, I think, talking about it then. But yeah, yeah tell me about that, because it's, it's done very well. Well, Forstex, I mean, the, the, the story goes back to 92 again. You know, when you're working with athletes who can jump, You've got to measure how, how high they can jump. So Adrian Lees was, we were working back on Archimedes Acorn computers back in those days, and they were a lot more powerful than PCs. And Adrian had written software that could take the data from the, the Kistler and analyze it like that and give, it, give some feedback. Then we shifted to PCs. The Acorn sort of died out. And there was no real software interface to connect the, the Kistler. We could acquire it with the Biopack system. There's no problem with acquiring the data. It was processing it into some meaningful analytics. And um, there, there was nothing out there. E even the, the Bioware software wasn't giving you anything meaningful. A force and a time peak force, oh, wow, thank you. You're still having to measure jump height from, from the flight time measurement. You know, they did have an extra module you paid for to give you a few diagnostics, but it wasn't great. So that led me to creating an Excel spreadsheet that you could just copy that line of column of vertical force, pop it in the spreadsheet, it spits out all these different metrics. And over time, that I, I used that for demonstrations with the students. It, we set little projects going up in, in the first and second years where they would have to use that spreadsheet to analyze their own jump performance, be it counter movement, squat jumps, drop jumps. Um, it led to um, workshops with the EIS when we, we were all getting swamped with the, the Newton's FITEC system um, there was a lot of inconsistency in how practitioners around the country were analyzing forces. One of the, one of the first things, the fundamental thing about force analysis was zeroing with nobody on the force plate. There were practitioners in some parts of the country that zeroed the plate with the athletes stood on, right? So when you zero that and you, and, and on, on Newton's system, you would get massively different power outputs, whether you start with absolute force or net force. So fundamental differences in data collection. So we went in and, and I think it was in 2004, in the, the day leading up to the three years championships down in, uh, down in Birmingham, we did a, a workshop um, on force analysis. 
So there was definitely a need then for standardizing how people use force plates. You then go into to football clubs. Uh, I was in doing stuff with Dan Cohen uh, in 2002 at Man, Man United, testing the, the entire squad of players. That spreadsheet then I gave to Dan. Dan used it to analyze all the data to give feedback to uh, Rob Swires at, um, at Man United. And he was also working with the guys down at Arsenal uh, for doing some research there. So that was 2002. These workshops are 2004. And then, you know, over time, I'm going back into Man United, going stuff into Man City. And the players are coming in and going, what, you want us to do jump testing again? I only did it the other day for for someone or other. And I'm like, putting two, two and two together going, this is just ludicrous. Why are you doing jump tests for the physio, the, the S&C, and now the physiologists have got involved? I'm like, we just need one system here. So that sort of got my creativity going. I'm thinking, well, all these people before me have made products and were getting us to evaluate. I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm a user myself. I'm seeing a need. Let me make my own my own system. So I created my own little dual force plate system wrapped up into a, a lifting platform. I just used um, Pasco force plates, vertical force only, 250 pound each. Fuel connecting wise, you're looking at maybe eight nine hundred pound. Packaged it, you know, made a little nice. Uh, lab view program to, to analyze it. And that was for me, the, the start of dual force plate testing for the, the world that I was working in. In 2012, I met up with Dan Cohen again, and uh, 10 years had passed. Dan had been doing things um, and we got talking. He showed me what he'd been doing. And it, this was connected through Martin Matthews, who was a colleague of mine at Salford. And um, we just said, look, we can really do something here. And at that point then in 2012, we, we, it was the beginning of Force Dex. Uh, we used Dan's uh, software platform that he'd been developing. He got some nice features, some databasing features of it. And we used my knowledge of how to make it more intuitive to do pattern recognition, not through machine learning, just through experience you know and um in 2013 we, we were up and running we we got a few key users um i think i'd sold four systems of my little prototype around the country and dan dan really took it on force decks wouldn't be there without dan cohen absolutely for me, I'd just moved to Aspire. Um, I was starting a new career. I had to sort of rein in a lot uh, from what I was doing. But um, the, the, the creativity, the stimulation around creating new tests and outputs uh, was what, what ticked my boxes, you know. And Dan was out, you know. It, it, I know he'd get annoyed if I said he was a salesman, but he was. Nothing wrong with that, Phil. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Dan is a researcher, but he also sold four stacks. Let me just say that. He, he, it, it wouldn't be where it is today if Dan wasn't out on, you know, visiting clients and um, the, the passion he had for it was unreal. You know, I, I had passion for it because it was stimulating my my thought processes, the problem solving things that I, I thrive off. And um, I, I think we did remarkably well. I'm, I'm so proud of it now. I'm still, you know, in, involved with, with VALD. We, we're developing new, new things as we're going along. Um, th there are things that make your blood boil at times but we won't go into that, but um, remarkably proud of what we achieved there. Mm. I, think we're, I think there's now 500 uh, customers, you know, and not users. That'll be, you know, 
couple of million, I guess. But in terms of sales of systems, I think it's now over 500, you know, across worldwide, including NASA. NASA have got a, a set, so. Mm, from Yorkshire you know, it just takes it to another stratosphere, really, doesn't it? Really. <laughs> what was the vision then? So when you were putting this together, at what point did you think this is going to be a commercial opportunity? I, I, should, I should always tell you, also tell you, I was born above a news agent. My mum was a news agent. So I've always had that business side of me in, in me. Um, I'm not an opportunist, I'm a problem solver. That, that's the way I'd see it. And it was when we were going into clubs, professional sports teams, seeing players getting annoyed that they were having to do things time after time when they'd done it before for someone else. And, you know, I'm no psychologist, but you pick up on things and you see that they're not putting effort in and you think, well, why am I, why am I testing you if you're not going to put effort in? And the reason is, go, go, have you read that book, Nudge? You know, Nudge, it's about getting to the bottom of problems, you know, not just patching it up with all these different, the bottom line is they were, they were fed up of doing it. You know, they, they, they would do it, but they, they weren't doing it properly to get good data and the underlying cause was um, was because they'd been made to do it too often for different people and there was no joined up thinking. So but I'm just going click, 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 click. Why is there not a system that can work for the physios for return to play? Bi bilateral assessment. You add the forces together, you get total output measures peak power, jump height, rate of force development, whatever it might be for the S&Cs. And then, you know, later down the line, the physiologists came and were talking about neuromuscular fatigue monitoring. And at the time I was like, seriously, you think a, a vertical jump can, can tell you if you're fatigued or not? You know, I was a bit skeptical about that for a, a couple of years. Um, I have to say now I do believe there is something in it, but it certainly wasn't on my my radar initially. It was more about linking medical with science within a, with a, within a team with a database that meant that you, the, both entities could could uh, examine that data for their own purposes within a, a much more coordinated framework. And, and obviously, it wasn't just the jumps. There was other things like ISO squats and isometric tests that came along as well. Mm. Did you enjoy working in that commercial world then of building that up? Look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think it's it was a little one step far removed for me. Um, I'm not a businessman. Um, and I don't think Dan was. We, we learned a lot of things going along, but our third partner was a lawyer, you know, so he, he brought something additional to the table and, and guided us uh, very heavily, particularly when we came to, to sell to, to Vald and were looking for uh, investors. You know, he, he, you know, he really did help us in, in that side of things. The rest of it, I mean, <laughs> If you strip it right back, you tell me, how can a company where you had one person in Qatar, one person in Colombia, when Dan moved out to uh, University of Santander, and a lawyer, third partner in London, how can you make a business work with two other people, uh, software developer and an administration person that we had as well. There were five of us. And by that time, we'd, we'd sold 200 systems. And we'd, we'd got our, obviously, the, the guys who were making the, the systems up um, and, and, you know, sending them out and what have you from the UK. Is it possible 
you, if you were if you were setting a business up, you would not follow that model, hundred percent. But we made it work. We made it work. How I don't know. Mm. Yeah. But, in, but you know, how how did it work? Okay, I'll answer that. We had a product that did what it said on the tin. You know, we, we didn't go triaxial force plates. We went vertical only. We stripped things back to what was needed and necessary. And the software, it, we weren't about making force plates. We were making a, we, the, the whole thing was making a software solution. That was what we were out to do, to resurrect force plates that were, were sat in cupboards that, weren't, that hadn't been used for years. We created the and built the drivers to, to tap into Amti, Bertec, Kistler, uh, Pascos, as well as that. We, and what we realized, we couldn't build a, we couldn't build a company off Pascos. They were cheap. They, they're great for traveling. Absolutely brilliant for traveling as a, as a, a measurement system there. But if you've got 120 kilo rugby players bouncing on them, they're not going to last long. So we didn't want the headache of, of trying to support a product that probably doesn't have the robustness uh, to, for us to not have to deal with. So that's why we ended up making our own force decks. You know? and, and funnily enough, you know, from being a software solution to them becoming a force plate manufacturer the whole name of force plates and force platforms changed and everyone were referring to them have you got on the deck shit have you got your force deck even if they were kisslers or whatever uh we're going to do some jumps on the force decks you know <laughs> i can't even remember who came up with the name decks it was probably done, but uh, for sure, it, uh, it hit a note with people. It certainly hit a note. Yeah. No, it's great. No, I've definitely seen a lot of those on my travels around the club. So, mm. um, so just to think as well, I'm sure you mentioned that you did some work with the Jamaican sprint team at one point. <laughs> well, that, that, was, um, that was in May 2012, pre-London. Uh, Deborah Sides had been working with the sprint team down in London at Lee Valley as part of her PhD with UK Athletics. And the, one of the main athletes in that group with Stuart McMillan and Dan Path there was Dwayne Chambers. And he decided in March or April time that he needed to go train in Jamaica with the, I forgot his name now. Steve, Stephen Francis, and that group with Asafa Powell, Nesta Carter, Michael Freighter, Shelley Ann Fraser Price. So he left, and Debs said, you know, he's moved, he's Dwayne, one of my main subjects, if you like, has gone to Jamaica. And I says, well, I think there's some money in the, the, the budget. You know, maybe we can go and put a case forward and, and go do some work with them. So sure enough, the, you know, when we looked into it, there was a whole squad of, of athletes, you know, 20, 25, 30 athletes ranging from best in the world to really good juniors. And we, we, we went out there, we took some jump with us, we took the lav egg, took high-speed video, and we went and did 10 days working with that squad, um, engaging Asafa into conversations about his peak speed and where that occurred. Amazing. You know, and, and funnily enough, um, I bumped into him at the Diamond League here in, uh, a few years ago in Doha, and uh, I showed him the photo that we'd had in Jamaica at the track when I was showing him the, the screen of, of the lab egg. And he said, yeah, I remember, I remember. So we had another photograph taken, so cool, pretty cool. I mean, again, 
lads from Yorkshire, what, what on earth is he doing, you know, discussing how fast someone is to a Saffa Powell? Shelley Ann Fraser Price, you know, just having a bit of a giggle with her playing uh, Bob Sinclair Rock the Party at the track and boogieing along to it. It's like <laughs> absolutely mental, absolutely mental. Yeah, no, it's great to have those experiences mm. along the way. And so finally, it's a big question, but what do you see the role of, where do you see the future of biomechanics from a sporting, private clinics and from a public health standpoint? Great question. Um, brutally honest, I think biomechanics is going to be more taken up now. And, and we can see very clearly that's been adopted more and more by strength and conditioning, which, you know, probably to blame for that as well, for setting up the, the biomechanics S&C sort of course with Paul Comfort at Salford. Um, S&C is in every university now. So I think biomechanics is going to be taken over by the S&C world, but also physiotherapy. It's extended scope. There's, there are so many physios now are doing more and more courses and postgraduate qualifications in biomechanics. And both of those two professions have got that one extra dimension. And that dimension is that they've got the ability to do interventions. Pure biomechanists are information providers. And yes, there will be a need for doing detailed gait analysis, but your podiatrists do a lot of that to some extent anyway. Podiatrists can also do interventions. They can make orthotics. The pure biomechanist is going to shrink if they don't do anything about that. That whole body are going to shrink down to be I can do things in a gate lab. I can do things in a sport lab. I, I just don't see coaches do biomechanics. They work off technical models. You know, coaching science degrees are teaching biomechanics within that. I, th I think we're, we're at a very tricky point in, in, in life for biomechanists. Go back to the news agents. My mum was a news agent. She was a the president of the, the Halifax branch of the National News Agency Federation or whatever. What happened when supermarkets were allowed to sell papers? News agents as we know it are no more, you know, and I, I, I would hate to see it, but I do have concerns for biomechanists who, have, who that's their only if they've got no, no more dimension to them than just being fixed in a lab, then they, their uses are going to be few and far between. So I, I, I hate to be the preacher of gloom, but I think the time has come for biomechanists to wake up and see, but to have more of the outward-facing engagement, that there will, there will be opportunities, you know, to, to do evaluations of equipment and technology, but they've got to be more outward facing to, to do that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. No, well, that's good advice. I might put that out there and uh, see, see if you get any feedback on that one as well, but no. Yeah. 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 No, it's good. In terms of you then, how long do you foresee that you're going to be in the Middle East for? I have no idea. No idea. Mm. I think, um, you know, we say I'm 50, 51 now. I'm enjoying life. Um, we'll have to wait and see. You know, family, we've got, obviously, you've got a certain lifespan in, in the Middle East. You know, but when you get to 60, you know, you have to get extended circumstances to, to stay on. You know, they don't want an aging population. So could, am I going to be another nine years? Highly unlikely. Although the 2030 Asian Games have just been awarded to Qatar. So, you know, there, there probably is going to be some funding there. I, I would be amazed if I'm here when I'm 60, let's say. 
And I think it's going to boil down to what my daughter does, where she's going to be um, longer term, family, parents, and what have you back home. You know, it's more to it than than, than just the job. I think when you get get to this this age, there's there's wider issues, and certainly families one, and uh, other life opportunities, other experiences, um, whatever comes up. You know, I'm, I'm I won't say I'm actively looking now, but if things come up, you know, we'll, we'll have a look. I think. Mm. Very good. And you've got a dog there now, so that... Yeah. He's actually been very quiet. She's under the table here. <laughs> little little Tala. She's a cracker. Absolute cracker. And then finally, in terms of the World Cup, are you going to have any... What, what, are you going to see much of that or are you going to be involved at all? Um, look, I don't do much with the football department at all. Um, I work with Warren Gregson, who's out here. A uh, good guy. I give my input to Sammy Kootenan, who's head of biomechanics. We we get on really well. Um, I won't be doing anything of any note to influence Qatar players, anything. Warren did. He was working with the national teams at one point. Um, I think if I'm here, it'll be purely as a, a spectator, just enjoying the spectacle, really. Which, uh, to be honest with you, I was a little bit, you know, before I moved out here, I'm like, yeah, whatever. One World Cup in one city, you know, not so sure. But I can guarantee, having been part of the development, or not saying being part of the development, being in and around the country in the last eight years, having seen it become what it is, I have no doubt whatsoever that the World Cup will be spectacular. It'll be unbelievable. Yeah. No, well, certainly looking forward to it and hopefully we can all get back in a stadium. So that'll be, uh, that'll be an exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Great. No, Phil, I really appreciate your time on that. And I very much look forward to catching up with you when you're back in the UK. Yeah, so, um, definitely. Yeah. Great. All right. Thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem. Great to speak.